You can be seated. And if you'd like, go ahead and open your Bibles up to the book of Philippians. Book of Philippians. Uh, next Sunday is the official start of Advent, so that's when we'll start our Advent uh, sermon series. Looking forward, of course, to that. Uh, but for now, for this morning, we are in our second installment in this look at uh, look through the book of Philippians. It's been a couple of months since we've been in uh, this book, so just just a very brief reminder about uh, what I said there as I introduced uh, this series. The, the book of Philippians, you really could say, is sort of bread and butter Christianity. It's, it's Christianity 101. Um, uh, one of the themes, as you, as you look through commentaries, etc., on, on Philippians, they say one of the themes is the gospel. <laughs> Seems sort of obvious, but that's because it's so clear in the book of Philippians. And so, because of that, each sermon in this sermon series that I, that I preach through will be titled, The Gospel, and it does something. Okay, so, so last time we looked at how the gospel guarantees glory, from really verse 6 of, of chapter 1. But here this morning we're going to look at how the gospel defeats pride. We'll see that in our second section here today. So now let's hear the word of the Lord, uh, starting there in verse 12 through verse uh, 18, the first half of verse 18 of chapter 1. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Let's pray. Oh, Father, as we look again at this letter of Paul to the Philippians, would you give us the grace this morning to receive your word, that it would implant itself in our hearts. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free. Okay, this is what C.S. Lewis writes. A vice which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people ever imagine they are guilty of themselves. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it, the more we dislike it in others. What is this vice? Well, you probably guessed it. It's pride. Pride. But he goes on. Other vices may sometimes bring people together. You may find good fellowship and jokes and friendliness among drunken people or unchaste people. But pride always means enmity. It is enmity, and not only enmity between man and man, but enmity to God. For pride is spiritual cancer, he says. It eats up the very possibility of love, or contentment, or even common sense. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Phew. 
you're right. Other people are really prideful. I'm glad I, I don't have it that bad. No, no, Lewis would tell us. He, he would go on to describe pride as essentially competitive. What does that mean? Well, pride doesn't just say I'm rich or I'm clever or I'm good looking. No, those things actually might be true of you. No, pride says I'm richer. I'm more clever. I'm better looking than you. For us sitting in the room today as Christians in, in church this morning, maybe pride doesn't just say I know God. No, it says I know God better than you. It doesn't just say I follow God's law. No, it says I follow God's law better than you. I'm more righteous than you. And Lewis says that no one is free from that most basic competition. It's my pride versus your pride. That's the game we've all started, and none of us really know how to make it end, how, how to get it to, to stop, to reach the finish line. What are we to do? What are we to do about the spiritual cancer of pride? Well, if we could put it this way, there's another competitor who's entered into the arena. One who can stop this perpetual game we're playing with one another, this game that, that nobody ever wins. Who is that competitor? Well, of course we could say Jesus, but this morning I want to answer with the gospel. The gospel can end this game. In fact, the gospel is the only mechanism. You can search far and wide, all the philosophies and religions of this world, none of them have this answer. The gospel is the only message, only mechanism designed for this competition. Okay, we're going to see that in the life of Paul this morning. Paul, he has more to boast about, more, more to be prideful of than any of us in this room, but he figured it out. The gospel came and it defeated his pride. And it can come and it can defeat yours as well. Let's talk about how. I really want to talk about how through, through two points this morning. The first is that the gospel gives you a new perspective in hardship. A new perspective in hardship. You say, well, how's that related to pride? Well, hopefully I'll answer that here soon. But second, the gospel gives you joy in the success of others. Okay. New perspective in hardship, joy in the success of others. So first, a new perspective. To understand Paul's situation here in Philippians, we really have to go back to the book of Acts. And if, if you can remember uh, back then, um, Paul, he chooses to go to Jerusalem okay, during Pentecost, much to the chagrin, the disappointment, the confusion of of those he knew well, but also just the church at large. Everyone pretty much assumed if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be arrested, if not just outright killed on the spot. Okay, but Paul, various reasons, he decides to go to Jerusalem. Anyway, what happens? Well, he is arrested. Okay, he's, he's placed on trial, and long story short, he appeals to Caesar. Okay, so that, that gets him to Rome, eventually, and placed on house arrest there while he awaits trials. So that, that's, that's Paul's situation as he's writing this letter to the Philippians. He's, he's suffered and is currently suffering. He's imprisoned. He's awaiting trial. He's awaiting maybe execution. He's just, he's just not sure. We'll see that in our next section. But these are all sure signs of God's curse, right? Sure signs that God's not blessing Paul anymore, right? 
that's at least we can read out of these uh, verses here what, what many of Paul's contemporaries were saying of him. And if we're honest, that, that's, that's typically how our logic flows in these kind of situations. We say if, if something is successful, if it's prospering, then it, it's experiencing God's blessing. But if something is, is struggling or, or looks like it's failing, that must be God's curse. That's at least how we typically think. And if Paul were to follow our logic there, he could easily say in writing to the Philippians, he could say, God, how could you? God, how could you? I'm the greatest evangelist in the world. Uh, no one's planted more churches. No one's persuaded more souls for Christ. No one's been as faithful. God, how could you? You know, we do that often. Especially in hardship. We say, God, all I've done is follow you faithfully my whole entire life. Now I've got this sickness. Right? God, I've worked hard. I've been a man of integrity. I've been faithful at my job, but now I've lost it. God, I've been faithful to you. And my life is just a complete wreck and disaster. God, how could you? How could you? Now, those are all terrible situations. We don't want to minimize the difficulty that we experience in this life. You see, when we say those things, that's, that's a little bit or maybe even a lot of pride coming out. If we're honest, we think we just, we just walk the straight and narrow with God. The life will sort of just button itself up. It'll be clean, it'll be easy, we'll sort of get what we want. If we're honest, we, we don't really think we deserve hardship. We might say we do, but we really don't believe it. Or we don't even think we really deserve inconvenience, do we? We don't, we don't think God should ever change our plans, do we? But faced with hardship, Paul doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't start off with, God, this isn't fair. God, I don't deserve this. In fact, he hardly mentions himself at all. Did you, did you pick that up as, as we read it? You see, yes, he is in this terrible situation. Okay, it does look like God's curse from an outward perspective. It doesn't look like his blessing. Other Christian pastors, maybe even pastors that, that Paul discipled or at least knew, they're, they're mocking him, they're taking digs at him, they're telling him he was wrong to go up to Jerusalem to do these things. But what does he want to do? Paul wants to encourage he takes the time at the very beginning of this letter to encourage the Philippians. He wants to make sure they're okay through this all. He's in jail. He wants to make sure they're okay. You see, Paul has so lost himself in the gospel that come success, come hardship, come whatever, he's not the most important consideration. Only by having that perspective can you see that God has a better plan. Okay, only by having that perspective. So far as you are fixed on how, God, this isn't fair, God, you've ruined my plans, you'll just miss it. You will, you'll miss it. It's been the continued strategy of God throughout history that the very people, the very things we think the most strategic, God actually lets them die or allows them to fail or he changes the plans 
And we ask, why? Why, God? Because God has a plan to advance the gospel in ways that we could never expect. Right? Ways we could never plan for. Ways we in our own minds could never have enough strategy to pull off. Paul says there at the very beginning, verse 12 of our passage, he does tell us, he says, yes, this looks, does look bad. It does. The greatest evangelist in the world is in jail. Okay, this can't be good for the early church. This can't be good for the spread of this, this gospel message. Yes, it looks bad. But, but, God's actually turning it for good. Yes, it looks bad, but it's actually turning out in some ways better than it was. You say, Paul, Paul, how is this better? Verses 12 and 13, he answers that. He says, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. How? So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. You see, Paul didn't have in his great missionary schemes plans to evangelize the imperial guard. He just didn't. You see, the imperial guard was this, this sort of hyper-elite group of soldiers that, that would guard Caesar and other high-ranking Roman officials uh, in the city in, in, in that day. And there may be a kin, we can think of them like our secret service, uh, perhaps. They would have been some of the most callous, some of the most entrenched members of Roman religiosity, Roman, Roman culture. Not to mention they would have been armed, of course. They just, it wouldn't have been easy to gain a captive audience among them just naturally out and about like, like Paul was. But now in house arrest, you know what Paul's situation was like. Okay, day and night, you know, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, Paul was chained to one of these soldiers. Okay, the soldiers, of course, they, they got to take shifts, but of course Paul didn't. So whatever he did, there was always a Roman soldier a member of the imperial guard chained to him, whether he ate, drank, prayed, went to sleep, went to the bathroom, talked to people, no matter what, somebody was always there with him. And the funny thing is, it it seems like it didn't affect Paul all too much. Sure, it affected him some, but do you know what it did for these soldiers? You know what it did for these soldiers? One by one, these soldiers began to listen to Paul. They began to maybe see his manner of life, maybe hear his prayers. And presumably, some of them began to convert. And as they converted, they took this gospel message to, to other members of, of the Imperial Guard, and, and even further, so, that, so much so that Paul could say there that the whole of the Imperial Guard had heard the gospel message because of his imprisonment. Again, if you're so focused on how things aren't going your way, Paul could have been, right? Things are not going my way. You'll never pick up on the plan of God. You'll you'll miss being the blessing that God actually would would intend you to be in your situation. How does the gospel give us a new perspective in hardship? Let's just let's think about for a moment who Paul is emulating for us here. Okay? Paul is emulating, of course, the same attitude of Jesus in hardship. For does the book of Hebrews, one of the famous lines in that book, say, for the what? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And we in our natural minds, we say, what? What? Yes, the joy to endure for the sake of others. 
If you know against all expectation that the Son of God came down from heaven to live for you, to die a cursed death so that you might receive the blessing of God, you just have to approach hardship in a new way. Now, it's, it's no longer about all the injustice done to you or all how this is inconvenient and unfair. How could it be? You see what God allowed Jesus to go through. No, you could say, I'm suffering. Yes, that's true. But how can I encourage others? Yes, I'm suffering. This is bad. But, but how is the gospel being advanced through my circumstances? The gospel makes it possible that hardship won't destroy you. It will actually sharpen. It could even enhance your purpose here on this earth as it did for Paul. That's a new perspective in hardship, isn't it? Okay, now what about this joy? Let's switch gears. What about this joy that Paul has at the end of our passage? I want us to think about this joy by offering a contrary Example this morning. Okay, Inspector Javert. Okay, Les Mis, uh, I'm guessing you, you know the story at least fairly well, but Inspector Javert is a man born to common criminals, and he's embarrassed by that. So he spends his whole life trying to overcome it, trying to rise above his birth. How does he do this? Well, his parents were criminals, not him. He would live with an absolute commitment to the letter of the law. Okay, those, those who keep the law like, like Javert, bastions of religious and social virtue in France. Okay, those who don't, you're, you're, you're a criminal, even if you break the smallest dot, and thus you're the scum of the earth. If you know the story, Javert's whole career is really spent not being a, an officer. That's just sort of the cover. His whole career is really spent on gaining and maintaining an inner sense of superiority to others. But he runs into trouble. Okay. He's working undercover, and he's found out by who? By the criminals, right? The, the criminal revolutionaries of the time. He's arrested in their own way. He's, he's taken for prisoner, and he's appointed for a day of execution. What happens? Well, that day comes. The protagonist, Valjean, takes him to a side alleyway. And what happens there? He takes a knife out, and he cuts his bonds. Tells him, run, go. And he fires a shot in the air. Mercy. Mercy. A criminal. The scum of the earth had attained what Javert could never attain. A higher moral good than the law. A criminal. Turns out it's a better man than Javert. Drives him mad. So mad, if you know the story, he goes to a bridge the same day, jumps off it into the river Sin. Pride. The essential competition was Javert's life. You see, pride, it could also go by another name. We could call it this morning, we could call it glory emptiness. Okay, we are all starved for significance. You know this. We're starved for honor. We're starved for a sense of worth. For some of us, that glory, emptiness, that pride looks like Javert most of the story. It's, it's very evident pride. It's overt bravado. 
But for some of us, our pride looks like Javert at the end of the story. Overwhelmed in self-loathing. Unable to receive mercy. Unable to receive forgiveness. Either way, we're trying to feel superior. Trying to prove ourselves to God and to others constantly. How about we put it this way? Have you ever seen someone who's been at the company you work at, been there for a shorter time than you, but get promoted faster and maybe even over you? After a hard day parenting, have you ever looked through, scrolled through social media and seen how the other moms handled the day better? Have you ever known a couple who didn't work half as hard in their marriage, and yet their marriage never struggled like yours? Have you ever seen someone act more merciful and more loving than you did in the same exact situation? Our gut responses to those situations, that's all we need to know about our own pride. All we need to know about our glory emptiness. And this is where we get to Paul. Paul, as we mentioned, greatest evangelist in the world, most successful preacher of his time. If we could could put it this way, he's sort of the gold standard. He's at the top of his field there in the first century. But now imprisoned, what happens? Well, verse 15. Those who were starving for glory, they swarmed at the opportunity, didn't they? They thought, now's the time. We, we finally have an opportunity to, to supplant Paul, to maybe gain some of his glory, some of his renown. Now, it must be said about these, these teachers that Paul mentions that these, these men weren't false teachers. That'd be too easy for our minds. Now, these were legitimate teachers. They taught the true Christ. They taught the true gospel. What's the problem here? Their motives. But Paul's point is is really not to talk about them so much. His point, interestingly enough, is really to say, I don't care. Right? I just just don't care if they take my spot. It doesn't matter to me. Look at at verse 17. He says, these preachers, they think they can afflict me in my imprisonment. What's he saying? Well, they think they can cause Paul emotional distress over their success. They think that he'll be worried that they'll take his spotlight or his influence or his glory, but they're just flat out wrong. Paul says there, whether in pretense or in truth. Does that mean, well, whether with selfish motives or with good motives, he says, I'm just glad Christ is proclaimed. Now, of course, Paul's not happy with their motives. Of course, they're not good. Maybe their motives are going to lead them to eventual ruin, and maybe they did. We don't know. But Paul's just not going to worry about that right now. Okay, the gospel is being heard farther and wider because of this. And if the Lord is granting them success in their ministries, then he says, praise the Lord, I will rejoice. He says there at the end. Now I think we have someone to really compare ourselves to, don't we? Positively. Okay. Think about Paul and his situation here, and then compare it to your own responses. Is that how you respond to the success of others? I would say it's probably not, at least in your heart, at least a lot of the time. Of course, you might have 
picked up on this. Paul, Paul's ultimate joy here is that the gospel is advanced, right? His, his joy is not really in that, the success of these men per se, okay? But I wanted to put it this way to us, joy in the success of others, so that we wouldn't sort of shirk around the responsibility of applying this directly to our own situations in life, whatever that looks like for you. Because Paul, he could have easily fallen into the trap. I think we can admit that. He could have said, I've studied more than them. I've endured greater difficulties than them. I've worked harder than them. I deserve this success they're getting. God, this isn't fair. God, how could you? You could very well say the same sort of things in your life. And maybe you even have. Whether that's in your job, your career, maybe parenting, family life, maybe that's sports, hobbies. I don't know what it is for you. Paul, he chose the route of selfless joy. We have to ask how. How can he do that? Well, the answer is because the gospel had come and filled his soul. Filled it up to the brim, even. So much so that that he didn't starve for the glory anymore like Javert. Right? The gospel came and told him he was so loved and cherished by God that he sent Jesus to die for him. And when that message really seeps down into your soul, it really does two things for you. First, humbles you so greatly that you simply can't feel superior to anyone anymore. How could you? You know, Jesus had to die for you. How could you feel superior? But secondly, the gospel humbles you, but secondly, it also raises you up, doesn't it? It says that in Jesus you are accepted by God to the fullest extent. There's nothing anymore you can do. There's no one left to prove. So guess what? You're free. You're free from the competition. If the Lord would would take you to the top, whatever that looks like for you, you can have joy. If the Lord would humble you, and elevate others, again, whatever that looks like, you can still have joy. A new perspective in hardship, joy in the success of others, freedom from the soul-eating cancer of pride. Allow the gospel to come and defeat your pride. It will. Let's pray. Father, we do confess our own pride. We lament how destructive it is both for ourselves and for those around us. And would you allow the gospel to so permeate our lives that pride does lose the competition. That we would have the same selfless attitude of Jesus every single day. Give us strength for that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you Thank you for listening. For the sermon archive, go to wpcjc.org forward slash resources forward slash sermon hyphen archive. Scripture quotations are from the ESV Bible, the Holy Bible, English Standard Version, copyright 2001 by Crossway, a publishing ministry of Good News Publishers, used by permission, all rights reserved. ESV texts may not be quoted in any publication made available to the public by a Creative Commons license. 
ESV may not be translated in whole or in part into any other language. Verbal credit must also be given to the ESV.